Comics Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan. And DigitalOcean. Go to digitalocean.com and use the promo code Here's the Thing, all one word like you're slurring it, and spin up your own Linux rig for free. And Linux Academy. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and invest in your mind while saving some money. Welcome to Linux Action Show episode 438. My name is Chris. My name is Noah. Hello, Noah. Good morning to you, sir. Good afternoon. And guess what? We have a big show today. Coming up on this week's episode of the Linux Action Show, we're going to review the KDE Plasma Desktop 5.8. It's their long-term support and the one that they say is ready for mere mortals. So we threw ourselves at it and we'll tell you how it went. And also, I'll tell you about some of the tweaks I made to make it a, I think, stunning looking desktop. Simple, quick, quick things we'll cover in this week's episode. Then in the news segment, Fedora has a major problem, and the problem gets worse if you try to fix it. We'll tell you what's going on and why Fedora 24 might be the roughest release we've seen in a long time from Fedora. Snap packs, flat packs, universal app installs, they all have some big news this category. We'll continue our thoughts on the Cody Pirate Box thing, some follow-up stuff, some Great feedback from the audience last week. And then we'll talk about KDE's 20th birthday and wrap it all up with a little bit of feedback and some hardware that Noah recommends for Linux. Surprise, Noah, you might not even know what it is yet, but you've already recommended it. Okay. What could it be? But before all that, Noah, do you know what we got? We got the picks. Hell yeah, we I, got I know the what picks. these are as compared to the hardware. Yeah, you do know what these are. And I, I love this one. So there's even a little video. I'm going to take, I'm going to roll the YouTube dice and I'm going to say okay. we throw caution to the wind. Get it? All right. We throw caution to the wind. Get it? Get it? Yes. yes. And uh, we're going to roll the video. So this week, our uh, Runs Linux is the Hurricane Matthew Tracker. It runs Linux. It's being powered by Linux. And here's a video that uh, Noah tweeted out. Not this Noah. The... Uh, and OAA Noah. Oceanic uh, Atmospheric Observatory, whatever. Those Noahs, not that Noah. Those Noahs. And if you look there, that looked like uh, either Matei or Gnome 2. It's Gnome 2. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. you've already you already did some sniffing. Uh, well, it's not so so much sniffing as part of as part of the amateur radio emergency service. We actually do weather spotting. And so every summer, I spend a couple weeks out at our local NOAA, our weather center, and uh, and I've I've actually seen a lot of this stuff in real life. A lot of how this stuff works. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. And yeah. So it's actually a super super old version. At least the it one looks like an old version of Fedora old. when Clear Looks was the new theme. Yeah. Uh, well, the one in Grand Forks, at least, is a super old version of Red Hat. Oh yeah. Okay. But, uh, yeah. yeah. So but, um, uh, this might not. Linux. This probably won't surprise you at all. See, I thought I was going to take it up to eleven for you. Linux and Noah's connection, the other Noah, go way, way back. In fact, uh, this is an article from October third, nineteen ninety nine, and it reads: "In what may be the first competitive government contract involving the Linux operating system, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration last month has tagged." Restion, I think is how you say it, which was a Virginia-based company to provide a Linux-based supercomputer that promises drastic improvements to the ability to forecast dangerous weather patterns. It's a $15 million contract. It's going to be the first large-scale cluster of compact computers, XP1000 Alpha workstations running Linux at NOAA's Forecast System Laboratory in Boulder, Colorado. So this goes, Linux and, and the National Oceanic and Atmosphere Administration Go way back to the late 90s. It was one of the first large-scale supercomputer projects involving the U.S. government and Linux. So the connection 
has major roots. It's a good find, though. Also, one of the reasons why Linux has been such a powerhouse in this entire industry, including like the stuff you were talking about, is uh, years ago, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, there were several research papers released about large-scale weather mapping and, here's another one, building a high-performance Linux cluster for large-scale geographic modeling modeling for geographical weather conditions, changes, and things like that. And these studies, like this one here, was done by Princeton University, the Department of Geosciences at Princeton, and also involved Cray. And they, this is one of many that I found around this runs Linux, where a lot of these research papers use Linux for research purposes at the university, because that's what was available to them. And so in their examples that then government contracts were based off of, Linux was sort of the de facto supercomputer OS they used because all of these universities used it in their studies. And so it was, there was a mapping there they were able to take. And so, so it's interesting that today's runs Linux involves tr hacking, uh, hacking, tracking uh, Matthew when uh, it actually has roots all the way back to the very beginning of supercomputing Linux and major contracts. So it's a pretty cool runs Linux with a historical note to it. It's a nice sure. find. All right. You know what else is a nice find? Our first sponsor this week, DigitalOcean. Go over to DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code, here's the thing. That's all one word. You put it together kind of like you're inappropriately slurring it. Maybe you were at like a wedding late last night up in Bellingham, mm -hmm. and so you had a couple of glasses of wine, and so this morning you're saying, here's the thing. You put that all – I don't know why I'm explaining all that to you. Yeah, for some reason. You put all of that in over at DigitalOcean.com. You apply it to your account. You get a $10 credit. Now, here's why that's awesome. DigitalOcean has a kick-ass infrastructure all based around Linux using KVM for the virtualizer. They got data centers all over the world and they've wrapped it with an amazing interface where you can deploy your distro of choice. They got great ones, including ones like CoreOS and that free um, B... I'm not sure what it is, but it's some sort of like a Linux clone. I think it's, it's new. It's a Linux knockoff, yeah. Yeah, yeah and they I've got a file system you might be interested in. You could check that out because that file system happens to work incredibly well with DigitalOcean's block storage where you can attach block storage volumes from one gigabyte up to 16 terabytes and resize when you need, which happens to work really good with ZFS. And one of the things that's great about DigitalOcean is that pricing. Remember I said you get a $10 credit when you use the promo code, here's the thing. Look at the pricing. You can do hourly. So if you want to try something out, you want to experiment, you want to try a new open source project, and then you want to move into production. Three cents an hour for a crazy fast rig. You use the promo code, here's the thing, you get a $10 credit. It's going to last you forever. And on top of that, look at the high memory. You can get a machine with up to 224 gigabytes of RAM, 32 core processor, a 500 gigabyte local SSD, and a 10 terabyte transfer <laughs> for two bucks and 50 cents an hour. I mean, that'd be another way to use here's the thing. Why not? And then don't forget that block storage. You can really kick it up and cook with some gas. DigitalOcean.com. Go spin up a Linux rig for yourself and use our promo code. Here's the thing. Get a $10 credit. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. I think so, – uh, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you. Have you ever had a, a document that is sent to you and then you want to go print off the last page and sign and return it and then you end up having to print like – all 15 pages because it's all one gigantic PDF. And then you got to take the last page and sign it and throw the rest away. And then you mail it in. Oh, man. 
You know, and I, this has happened to me when I've been traveling, and there I am at, at some, I'm at a borrowed printer printing out a stack mm-hmm. of papers because I've, I'm using like whatever PDF viewer I can either that comes with my desktop mm-hmm. manager or it's in my repo. And or you're awful. not even using your computer. Maybe yes. you're at a, yes. a manufacturer of, of, you know, of the greatest Linux laptops and you need to print out a form <laughs> and get it signed that day. Yeah. And so you're not even using your computer. You're using one you stole off the table. That's right. Um, so PDFTK is a command line based utility. Oh. That's our desktop uh, app pick this week. And basically what it does is and we have uh, code examples inside the show notes but basically you I- install it and it, uh, mine installed right out of the ubuntu repos and you can take a pdf and i can strip just one page out of a pdf and put it into its own pdf so a lot of people are saying well if you're going to print it well you could just click file print and then figure out which page number it is and then click on that in the printer and then send it out you could do that um but this i can actually extract that page or that specific part of a pdf out i like that its own pdf and then email that out to somebody if I need to send that out or bring it back in or whatever. Um, so it's it, it's is one of those things that kind of came to light. I was looking this week to 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 do this exact thing, and then I found this utility, and I'm like, how have I not known about this? How is this not a thing? And why well, we made it to desktop app pick? So they have so, a, it is. so it's a command line version. They have like pro versions too. Mm-hmm. That seems to be like so that's where their money is. But uh, mm-hmm. PDF TK. Mm-hmm. And uh, if this is PDFTK server. That's that's what makes it a command line because it's a server, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. If there is, I think they, they charge for the for the for the um, the the graphical client thing. If there is a graphical client, I didn't really dig into it that much. All I know is if you in sudo apt-get install PDFTK, then you can use the thing with the command lines that we or the command structures that we put in the show notes, and you can extract those pages out. And it got me through this week. So that is our. Desktop. Okay. Boy, anytime you're buying something like that requires a lot of email back and forth, PDFs like a home mm-hmm. or what? Well, yeah, that is really nice. So good pick. Now I want to give a shout out to Brandon Johnson who hit me up on Twitter asking if we'd cover this. I know we had talked about it, but I don't in mm-hmm. offline. I don't think we ever covered it on air. So Brandon, thanks for bringing it to my attention. This is Paperwork, which is an open source note taking and archiving application. It essentially aims to replace OneNote, Evernote, and Google Keep. It's written in PHP, and it has a pretty nice-looking design to it. It provides a modern web UI built on top of AngularJS and Bootstrap 3, as well as an open API for third-party integration. The back end runs on MySQL, and that's where everything gets stored, which is pretty nice, really, kind of how I think I prefer things because it scales for a long time. I know a tons of, I have tons of tools I can throw against MySQL. And Paperwork will not only run on dedicated servers, but also runs on uh, a lot of NAS devices like QNAPs and Synology. Mm-hmm. So if you just want something on your LAN, UI is pretty so this nice. Is a, this is a web-based tool then, but you own the entire backend. Exactly. By, by and, and because there is an API, uh, third-party apps like that could be local could totally be possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I didn't dig in to see if there's any already created, but uh, it's all documented right here. I'm looking at it. And it's all really easy stuff to work with. It seems like if you wanted to, I'm throwing this in the spotlight just because we haven't tested ourselves, but it seems yeah. like if you wanted to set up a Google Keep or OneNote type application for yourself, especially for stuff around the home or a small business with pretty low resource requirements, you could try it out like on a droplet or on your home system in a few minutes. Yeah, this, seem, this seems like the perfect thing that could that you could use a Raspberry Pi for. I don't oh, know if man. you have an ARM port for it, but God, I could totally see throwing I this on a you, Pi you and just, just need sit in the office. Or... Everything you need would work on a Pi because you just need yeah. Linux, you need Apache, you need MySQL, and you need PHP, just the traditional LAMP stack. Okay. That would work. I mean, huh. if they're saying this thing works on a Synology, 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. So that's paperwork. Yeah, that's true. And the uh, the URL is pretty cool. Paperwork.rocks. And you can find a link in the show notes too. So thanks to Brandon for sending that in the show. We had tinkered around with it. Also, but I think I looked at it and we talked about it in the context of maybe we could use this for our show notes instead of Google Docs or something else. And then we just never really went anywhere with it. So I think it is time we talk about an open source note-taking and archiving alternative to Evernote, OneNote, and Google Keep at paperwork.rocks. All right, Noah, that's all the picks. Let's do the news. It's the news, and this episode is brought to you by... Ting.com. Go to last.ting.com to get our discount and to support the show. Last.ting.com. Ting is on a mission to make mobile make some damn sense because it's no BS. You just pay for what you use, your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes, and $6 for your line. That's it. If you got Wi-Fi you don't use a lot of data, you're going to pay hardly nothing. But you do need some data. When you go on there, you'll just pay for what you use. Same with the phone calls and the messages. So if you're like Noah and I... Uh, actually, I really have no idea how many text messages you send, but you must zero. do the Z- no zero. I send zero yeah. text messages. Yeah. In fact, I, so I, my number my number is a Google Voice number, right? So any of my text messages just go to my Hangouts thing. I have the notifications in Hangouts shut off. So like once a month or so, I'll go through and occasionally I'll go through and I'll find a couple of people that thought I was going to answer their stupid text messages yeah. that yeah. are not in Telegram. Yeah. And then I go through and respond to them. I sent them, my first text message last night for the first time in half a year, probably. I don't even know. Sorry about that. It was great, okay. though, because I was like, oh, yeah, there's like Hold this on. other way. And I just have did, it as a backup. <laughs> did, the, did the content of that message say, here's how you install Telegram. This is what you should be using? Because every – and I'm not kidding. I'll screen cap. You know I'm not lying about this. Every text message I get – gets a response. Hey, have you ever heard about Telegram? Let me yeah. explain Telegram to you. And now I've come up with all sorts of different ways to get people on Telegram because on Ting, if I'm on data, then I'm not paying for those messages. They're Whoa. just they're free to me. Look at Digital t- Titan in the chat room. He says he switched to Ting, Noah. His bill went from 34 bucks a month to 9 bucks a month. That is being really savvy. See, what I like about that too is you can have backup devices. So you can have devices. It's $6 for the line. And if they're just doing like a couple of status checks or you're using it for like 20, 30 minutes for testing every now and then, it's perfect yeah. for that. I, I will tell you there is a limit to that. Uh, when you <laughs> see, I did the same thing. I was like, yeah, three bucks a month, six no bucks harm, a no month for the line, six, six bucks. bucks. Yeah. yeah. Six bucks. No harm. No fault. See, that's what gives me in trouble. Uh, six bucks. No harm. No fault. Right. Well, then my bills started slowly creeping up and I look and I'm like, how the heck is my ting bill? Like $70. And I look and I'm like, oh, cause I have like eight devices and I'm not using Man, that. That's incredible though. That. That's incredible. That really <laughs> is. And if you had like, that is it for me. That is that's a great that's a great way for like employers to go. If you have eight or nine mm-hmm. people, oh, yeah. ten people you need to give phones to, your base and, cost is super low compared to any and, other carrier. And they have a different set for for business. Like you can you can go sign up and they have a separate accounting thing yeah. for business. And we use that at AltaSpeed and it, it it has a you know a panel and stuff like that. And you mm-hmm. can manage the employees and stuff like so that. So did that's you really go cool. into the dashboard and just like kill them or how did you turn them off? What was your did you do yeah, that? I just went to, yeah, yeah, just logged into the dashboard. And w- with me, you know, they're all GSM. So I just killed the SIM cards, took the SIM cards out, threw them away, and then yeah. I've just got my, my I restock every time they get sold for a buck. Yeah. Well, so, or you can pick them up. I mean, a SIM card's nine bucks. Unlocked, no contract. We're talking no contracts here. It's really nice. Plus, they have crazy great customer service where you get to talk to an actual human being. This is all for six bucks a month. And if you're uh, not even sure if you're ready to switch yet, they have a savings calculator you can try right here when you go to last.ting.com. And while you're there, also stop by their blog because they just did a write-up just a couple days ago 
on the new Roku players. I guess there's a new Roku starting at just 30 bucks. Rokus are seriously solid devices. Great for cord cutters or for even those of you that want to supplement. I don't think they're, I, I, you know, I have, a, I have three of them. I bought three of them over at Angel's house. I don't have them anymore. And they're still solid years in now. And one of the best mm-hmm. things about the Roku that I would love to see other people knock off, because this is mm-hmm. a great spousal approval feature, is they have a headphone jack built into the remote. And as soon as you plug mm-hmm. in your headphones into that remote, all of the audio, it stops going to your receiver or it doesn't go, it doesn't go to the TV. It goes to that remote control, which makes watching TV without disturbing somebody else really nice. Mm-hmm. And the volume mm-hmm. controls right there on the remote. What? What's your problem? No local media. Yeah, it does. Can't plug a flash drive into yes, the thing and I can't play local yes, media. You no, can. you yes, you can. Yes, no, you, you can. can. Yep, you can. You can. Yep, check it out. The new updates are pretty, pretty cool. Now, I don't know about the Roku Express. I don't know about like the crazy cheap one. No, that's fine. But you tell me I can buy a Roku and plug oh. a flash drive into yes. and watch media. Yeah. yeah, that is a thing now. Check it out. New And they, oh, they're, they're adding Ethernet now, which not all of the models had Ethernet. Most of them did, but not all. They support 4K. Uh, I know you like HDCP, so they got that now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they got that. Of course, you kind of have to have that if you want uh, 4K UHD video. Yeah, and uh, some of them, uh, some of them used to even have uh, card readers. It just depends on which one you get. They break it all out. Check it out. Um, like the Roku Premiere Plus has a micro SD card slot built into it, so that's something to consider if you're like Noah and you want to do the local thing. And then the Roku Ultra has a port where you can do local playback from a hard drive or something like that. So depending on which one you want to go with, an SD card might do it, or you might want the USB port. If you want the USB port for like a large hard drive, the Roku Ultra has it. They have it all broken out on the Ting blog. Get started by going to lass.ting. Com, and a big thank you to Tink for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. And look, we even schooled Noah on something about the Rokus. See what you get? You come at me with that local media. I was prepared for that question. Coming at me. So uh, you and I have had a back and forth on air and off air repeatedly about what a dumpster fire Fedora 24 has been. So for those of you who don't remember what a catastrophe it is, they released it with a kernel that they then had to immediately update uh, almost almost couple of days after Fedora 24 came out, that process ended up bricking a lot of the installs of Skylake users because of a package upgrade issue, resolved after a little while and some workarounds, but it was a pretty on the nose. This is a great example of what we're talking about. Plus, in our review, we talked about all the things that don't necessarily work with Fedora 24, including software availability and other things after release. And Noah himself, a longtime Fedora user, even says, yeah, you got to give a Fedora release two to three months to sort of bake out before it's ready to use, which I argue is completely unacceptable for a, a, a distro that has a short of release time and uh, support spans as they do. And we've sort of let it sit at that. We both have our opinions about it. It's water under the bridge until this week. I, I, I'm really glad they're being very clear and they're communicating very well about this problem. Uh, but holy crap. Uh, so there is an issue right now in Fedora 24 where X will crash during the update if your system has hybrid graphics. And the problem is, if you're trying to update to get the fix to prevent this problem, your system will crash. So it's really kind of a catch-22. The short version is if your system has hybrid graphics, an Intel video adapter that also has an AMD or an NVIDIA one, Mm-hmm. which is, you know, your system's supposed to switch between them. This has always been a huge pain in the ass and why some vendors that support Linux rigs don't even ship it. Don't update your system by running DNF from within your desktop. Don't update from the command line. Don't use DNF update inside an X session. Mm-hmm. The slightly longer version is if your system has more than one graphics adapter, 
and you use and you update the systemd-udev package while X is running, Ooh. X will crash. If the update process was running inside the X session, it will also crash and will not complete. This will leave you with an unfortunate situation where RPM thinks you have two versions of several packages installed at the same time, and then you're really hoarded. Here's the other problem. There are methods in place to use them, but there's not really a clear, like, this is how you do updates in Fedora. Do you use the command line? Do you use uh, PKCon? Like, what are you supposed to use? The safest mm -hmm. possible way for users on Fedora 24 is to use the Fedora system's offline update mechanism, which is pretty sweet. If you use GNOME and you get those, like, update pop-ups and you click them to update your system, you're already doing this. That's what's happening is when the system downloads and caches those updates and then restarts, it boots into a special state where very few things are running, just enough to run the package updates. You've probably seen this. You run the package update and then reboot back to a normal system. It's the safest way to apply updates, but a lot of people turn off the notifications and a lot of people feel like that's no better than a Windows box. Why am I running Linux if I have to reboot every time I want to even just update right. the simplest of packages? So right. I think a lot of people just prefer to use DNF from the command line if they're updating a few libraries, their web browser. Why reboot my entire system and kill 18 days of uptime or something like that? Mm -hmm. um, so there are commands we have linked in the show notes. They have a fix in, but like I said, that's really the problem. The nature of this bug means that installing the update will trigger the bug for the last time. So if you get all of the updates installed and you use one of the safe methods, they have subsequent updates that will no longer cause the problem. But you have to get over this hump. So we've had bricking of laptops with the winning boot. Now we've got totally broken package <laughs> systems. And I, the reason why I bring it up over and I harp on it is with the, with, with the backing of a company like Red Hat, with the community the outreach. Dollars. Huh? $2 billion. I think approaching $2 billion. And with the strategic community outreach that Red Hat has a unique position in the community where they can attend any event they really they deem worthy of going to, and they have a reach and a spread that I don't think I've ever seen any other distro come close mm -hmm. to. Uh, there's, sometimes there's a couple of folks from SUSE. Sometimes there's a couple of folks from maybe Ubuntu. But, like, for example, at Open Daylight Summit, I think there was probably 15 people from Red Hat there. Mm -hmm. And some of them were Fedora contributors. Some of them were Red Hat employees that do both. Mm -hmm. they, have a, they have a reach to the community like no other, no other company really does. They also have sort of a strategic advantage to owning the desktop for a web dev or the DevOps or the sys devs or whatever the hell they're called this week. They, there's a strategic advantage to be there because the, just like Canonical has benefited, a lot of people want to run on their desktop the same system they're running in the cloud, so that way when they're doing cloud development, the systems are the same. So this is there's a strategic reason for Fedora and Red Hat to want to be here. Plus, there's the name recognition of one of the world's largest open source companies that this is the distributions associated with them. But it's mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it seems to me that it's embarrassing that it's it's this release has gone so bad. It seems like they are blowing their opportunities constantly to establish themselves a great position and basically just handing this market to Canonical over and right. over and over again, both in the cloud, on the desktop, in the laptop, on Internet of Things mm -hmm. devices. They just keep blowing this market and they just they're they're just like writing a check to to Canonical. Every time somebody every time somebody buys a support contract from Canonical that isn't going to Red Hat, that's money they should have been making. 
And I believe they're not making it because of Fedora. And I, I, I respect the people at the project. We've had Matthew on the show before. I think he's a great leader, and I think he's really got a good head on the community. I think there's some great, great technology in Fedora. I think they push forward the open source desktop in a super important way. I, I can't wrap my head around this dichotomy where what could be one of the literally premier Linux distributions backed by one of the premier open source companies is in my estimation, one of the most amateur releases we have seen. I, there are tiny distributions with infinitely smaller teams that are putting out phenomenally better distributions that are truly pushing the envelope. And that, and from, from three to four people shops up to 10, 15 person teams that are, that are putting out, and I could name a few, you know who I'm talking about. There are mm. other distributions out there with less resources, with less time, with less sway in the industry that are cranking out better quality products. And some of them are completely built from scratch. It's not like they're just rebasing. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? The, you know, I, I think basically anytime uh, something potentially negative comes up around Red Hat, I'm the first person to try to jump to their defense, right? And I think part of that, being in a position that you and I are in, where we give commentary on these things. It, it can be presented in two different ways, right? You can take a you can take a, a a totally objective, hard approach and say this is really exactly what I think, and 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 barrel down that path. And some companies are totally deserving of that. And then other times you can kind of taper that off a little bit, and 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 the way that you phrase it, the way that you word it, you can uh, you know present that a little differently. And, and I'm the first person to take that softer path when it comes to Red Hat, mainly because that company has served me and my clients so well for like 15 years that I I, I, I feel like I owe them that much. They've done so many good things that I think it's okay to cut them a little slack every now and then. However, what am I supposed to say at this point? Just give it another couple months and then, Red Hat, then uh, this release of Fedora will start working? I mean, we're a couple of months out before the next release comes out. Like, yeah. So, there just there is no answer anymore. There, I, I don't I don't really have a good defense. I think they're a great company. I think they do a lot of really good things, and I think they totally botched it. Now, regarding what you were saying about the about them having the potential to be a premier Linux distro. Yeah, well, yeah. There hey, okay, a, can I pause they, you? Just think about it. You yeah, just sure. said your clients. They've done they've done so much good work for your clients by having yes. a great platform for you to deploy mm -hmm. there. Wouldn't it have been something if it would have been the same company, the same support number, the same support contract that also covered all of their desktops? That's an opportunity they blew. And that's that. It, it, so, and where I was going with that was you. You have a a a a, a, a space in the market where it is not being filled. We have. Uh, I have a, a number of different clients that are running Linux both on the server and on the front end. And right now, the the client that comes to mind, they have a medical facility. They've got. I think sixty clients and five or six servers. All five or six servers are running Red Hat. The Ability, if I walked into the CEO's office and said, hey, for the last nine years, <clears throat> we've been using Red Hat and we you sign the support contract every year, you pay him $15,000, yeah, everything yeah. works really, really well, yeah. <clears throat> you're totally happy to write that check, would you be willing to write a check for the desktops? I promise you, I would barely have to get the words out of my mouth and he would sign on the dotted line. And where am I supposed to do that with Red Hat? They don't have an enterprise-grade desktop. And if and anyone that tells me that Fedora is production-ready and that I we should go put that into, a, a, you know, like a desktop system, then take a look at this. This right here is a perfect example of how that would blow up in my face. And so instead, they're running Ubuntu. And we haven't got, they're running 12.04 because 14.04 didn't work with their software and 16.04 is technically supported by the software, but I won't install it because I don't trust it. Um, so we're running like five-year-old software 
And yeah. there is a spot, spot for it, and we're not taking it. Boy, and, that's going to be and tough. And that is fundamentally Red Hat's fault. You should do, you, you know, 1604 is going to be your best bet because pretty soon there's going to be a big transition coming to the Ubuntu desktop. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we talk about a big transition happening there? I'd love to hear the audience's thoughts on the Fedora thing. Um, maybe it's just both of us, it's just fantasies of having another really top-tiered competitive desktop that runs Linux that's a, that would be that would be attractive to uh, to developers. You know, I talked to some average Linux people last night at an event I was at. Nobody mentioned Fedora. They're all in the web. They're all web devs. They're wi- they're writing on their their application their web applications on Linux and putting them on Linux servers, and none of them used Fedora. In 2016, there is no company out there that makes a premier desktop Linux system that the company has a laser focus on the desktop itself. That company doesn't exist. Canonical is out there doing phones and TVs and God knows what and tablets. And uh, and and Arch is you know very focused on the desktop, but there's no big company behind them. And Red Hat is focused on the server, clearly. So we have a huge gap in the marketplace, and that gap is getting is is getting less and less filled because there are less and less businesses that are willing to go to Windows 10. Every business that I have worked with that has implemented Windows 10 has been a disaster, like a catastrophe. And Apple really isn't making a whole lot of movement inside of the in, inside of the the business corporate world. There's a couple of sales guys, a couple of marketing guys that are using them, but they're not in wide scale deployment. So, and we have this gap because they, everyone wants desktop computers, and we don't have any software to run. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So in that light, let's talk about elementary OS for a second and also a uh, change in the wind. So we'll get to universal packaging here in a moment, but we'll start with this story. The elementary OS project has announced that they've joined the snap format TOB, which is the uh, technical oversight board for the snap format. This is a multi-community group, which has members from uh, AppStream, Arch, Debian, KDE, Ubuntu, obviously, and Fedora, and now also elementary OS. And I mentioned this just as sort of a follow-up to our review because we kind of implied this might be coming. We thought it could. And this is obviously a big part of what Noah's addressing is getting this universal application so we can get more applications on Linux and average people can install them. Now, not all of us will use them, and a lot of us will still use our repositories. But to facilitate this, Canonical has announced Snapcraft 2.19. Now, this is a Snap creator tool that you can install on Ubuntu and actually other distros as well. And it allows you to build Snap packages really simply and easily, including with a GUI now. And they're adding new plugins like Node.js and run commands and all kinds of neat stuff that I don't even understand. And it really is moving pretty fast. And not to be outdone, the folks over at Flatpak also have a brand new release with some really great features. Flatpak 0.6.12 is out. And it has Linux application sandboxing. So it's here, which is great, because this is one of the critiques we had for Flatpak. It's nice to see this landing. Uh, new features in Flatpak 6.12 include support for the device KVM option to be able to access uh, dev KVM support, which is nice. Also, multi-arch parameters to allow running 32-bit and 64-bit applications. That seems kind of like a big one. And there's robustness fixes, as they say, for the build commit from command uh, command and the partial revert application of ID rules for when you I ran into this problem where I needed to revert back to an uh, application and... I ran into a bug at the time. Also, uh, Flatpak Update has received some nice updates. So both Snap packages and Flatpaks are raging straight ahead to our universal package format. Part of me is interested and excited. I kind of am looking forward to the day where we can say there's a universal package linked in the show notes. If you like what we just talked about, you can install it in whatever distro you want. I like that. 
But part of me is been a little disillusioned by some of the flat packs and snaps that I have used that haven't been updated as frequently as I would like or have little quirks where they don't feel quite as integrated to the desktop as I would like. And do I you think that's do you, do you think that's partly just a function of first we re, first yes, we yeah. we introduce this, then we update. Yeah. Or at first we introduce this, then we get people using it, then we update, then we you know. I think too you gotta you gotta get it out there in the hands of users across multiple different distros, or maybe sandboxing is done differently, and integration with the different desktops and desktop environments are done differently, and all that stuff yeah. just takes time. Plus, some of it's a moving target, so it's a little challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on our Cody coverage last episode of Linux Action Show. We talked about the big crackdown in the UK against pirate Cody boxes. And uh, the guys over at Torrent Freak have been doing a little follow-up on this story in particular. And they're talking about the – they looked at some of the add-ons that enable piracy for Cody. And they say that they seem to be on the rise. Cody itself, obviously, neutral platform. Millions of people using it for third-party add-ons to stream perfectly legitimate things like JB content. But millions of people are also using it to pirate stuff. And uh, slowly but steadily, piracy has moved away from downloads to streaming. According to recent estimates, streaming services are already more popular than torrent sites. Hmm. I guess one factor they say that played a major role in the shift was ease of use. Aside from having a movie and TV shows instantly available, it's also easier to stream content on a regular TV through Kodi-powered applications or set-top boxes, for example. Uh, TV add-ons is the largest repository of these plugins. They also distribute free telly, a custom preloaded version of Kodi. Hmm. I'm probably ready to go. And they say that they've seen a massive, massive traffic increase. December last year, TV add-ons received 2.8 million unique calls to their uh, update server per day. So here's the numbers. 2.8 million unique calls to their update server per day in December. And over 13 million for the entire month of December. Mm -hmm. Today... The numbers have doubled to a rough average of 5.6 million per day and 24.7 million a month. Lot, uh, a lot of growth in the Kodi add-on space right now. Lots of people downloading Kodi add-ons for different stuff. And uh, so it's, it's, it seems to be a trend that's increasing. And I, I came, after reading this story, I figured out the solution for uh, the piracy. I, I figured it out. It's obvious. Yeah, me too. Offer that's... The offer all of that available for purchase as a Cody add-on. Make a Cody add-on. So, oh, or no, it doesn't even have to be a Cody add-on. No, no. Go to why no, doesn't the BBC the just Amazon. why doesn't the BBC just, just the sure make it? Yeah, I mean, you could do that. I mean, you could put it as a Cody add-on. Why not? I mean, that kind of. But but then people have to use Cody to to get the content. What I'm saying is, just make it available. Go to like an Amazon, like a third-party site, and let me buy a TV show and then download an MP4 yes. of that TV show. That's I think what I want. that's all I, I think. They, the reason they're not doing that is they specifically don't want to go through a third-party re- reseller for some of this stuff. And here's why: yourself, exactly yourself. Let so me they already and download it. They already make apps. For the Apple TV and for Android TV, they already make apps for Roku. They already make apps mm-hmm. for lots of different platforms. They just need to treat Kodi as one more of the platforms. There's nah, obviously I, I don't agree. Why not? Why I, not? I why not make commercial? Why not a commercial company making their legal content available with a sign-in, so you could sign in and get access to all of the stuff that you have rights to in the UK, or maybe we take it here in the US, Comcast. 
Comcast could make a Cody add-on that I sign into and I get access to my Comcast stuff inside Cody. Why not treat the Cody application like an app platform, like they treat the Roku, the Apple TV, the Android TVs, all of these little crappy set-top boxes that I can't even name. They all, they're spending hours making apps for these things. Why not make Cody apps? Then I don't have to go get a, I don't have to go get a piracy add-on. I'll just go get the legit one. It, it's just like MP3 downloads. It's just like MP3 downloads. No, it's not. No, it's not. And I'll tell you why. Because at the end of the day, I still don't own the TV show. And a lot... I you would, are I would arguing the to... totally wrong thing. No, I'm not no, talking no, about I'm a not. solution for you. I'm talking I'm, about a solution. Not, I'm talking about a solution for people who buy television shows on Google Play. I'm talking about a solution for people who buy shows on, 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 on iTunes. Are not, those people are not the people that are building custom uh, media boxes for their living room. The people right. that are using Cody, a large majority of the people that are using the, those Cody, the people that care enough right. to want to build a system are the same people like, that think like me, whereas they want to own their media. They want to buy You're a wrong. file one time and they want to own that You're and then not, they want to be able to play on You're talking. You're talking about yourself and people in our audience and myself. You're not talking. The you're, Cody. you're not talking about the people that are buying these Cody boxes, mm -hmm. these fully loaded Cody boxes, on Facebook. They see an mm -hmm. ad on Facebook. They say, "Geez, that's a great idea. I'm going to buy this box. It'll come fully loaded with everything. I'll cut the cord and I can stream all this stuff." If you those make people are not good. You're not understanding people. my point. There is a trend happening here where this platform is growing for set top boxes. Why? And you can Why either get. Why is the trend growing? Why is it growing? It's growing because, because it's free, because there's there's a cost. If I can pay people one are time building systems around it. It's like Android. People are building systems around it and no. selling it to consumers fully I, loaded. I disagree. The, These they, consumers yeah, they are, are and, the, and they are, and the reason they're doing that, and the reason those consumers are buying it, that kind of customer is looking for a freebie. They want to buy a box one time and then get all of their TV shows yes. for free. Those so so if you offer that as a sell add-on, it takes away the entire purpose of having the Cody box to begin with. Then those people may as well just buy an Apple. I don't TV know why, or but Roku or here's the thing: is I feel like you are looking at this as a today issue, and I'm talking about these guys have an opportunity right now to skate to where the puck is going. There is a trend growing here where this is becoming, a, I believe it is crossing a threshold beyond the average geeks. And right now it's people that are, that are just outside that bubble that are aware of cord cutting, they're aware you can stream content, and now they're becoming interested. This thing is building momentum, and if they are there when the average consumer begins to arrive, they will be able to legitimize this platform instead of having it be the platform that robs them constantly. That's how they view it. Okay. Now, I'm so telling you today... There is a more enthusiast user, maybe a more custom builder, somebody who knows what a Raspberry Pi is that's more inclined to use Cody. I think in a year from now, and I mean like maybe even just like maybe two years most, but a year from now, it's, it is a mainstream, it is a mainstream product that people are beginning to recognize. And at that point, if they've already invested, let's just say the BBC has already invested the time to create an application for Cody where you could go log in and get your legally licensed stuff. They are skating to where the puck will be at so that when the consumer's there. I, we disagree where the puck's going. No, we, no. There are three. We there, don't. There it's just you, you're, you're, not, you're not considering the fact that there are things like the Yao Mei box now that are $25, $30 that come preloaded with Cody installed on them. It's, it's getting down to consumer level prices where you can go I into Best that. Buy and get a device with Cody I, on it. I understand that. But that's not why these people on Facebook are buying these preloaded boxes. They're buying the preloaded boxes because they don't want to have to pay for their TV. They just want it to come for free. They want to buy the box one time and then get all of the channels at that one cost fee. All right. Well, we'll have to because you're not you're not hearing what I'm saying. So we'll move on. My point is, 
you're talking about people that are buying it right now. I think that's going to transition because people will be buying devices that have Kodi preloaded on it very soon. People that aren't even buying it for anything other than they, for the same reason they're buying a Roku. You're not understanding what I'm saying. Is it's going somewhere well, because exactly the piracy saying. is it's like Photoshop. Photoshop benefits dramatically by the piracy. Photoshop's the reason why Photoshop is the gold standard is because it's pirated so much because everybody can use it and then once you can afford to pay for it you buy it. It's that same thing. It's that same. Cody is getting used. It's getting tested. It's getting features. It's getting added to real boxes built by big companies because so many people at that level are using it. That is the that's the foundation. Then it becomes a product that just ships, like like the Netflix app ships on a device, like the YouTube app ships on a device. Now the Cody app ships on a device. This is a fundamental game changer for Cody, where it's now it's going to start a transition phase to a broader market that didn't even buy the box because it has Cody. They just want something they can hook up to their TV that's easy and then and free. If no, people are buying Roku's. They're buying them by the millions. The, people that's are number, buying Apple not, TVs. They're not the reason that they're buying the Cody box is because they can All get right, the we're TV done. for free. Okay. You're to, you're not understanding what I'm saying. It's I, I don't know why you're not listening to me. These boxes that they're buying, like the Roku's, they're not buying they're they're coming pre it's coming preloaded with Cody. Anyways. Yes. Let's move on. To Mr. Linus Torvalds, a story I didn't even think we would cover until the media started framing it in a way that, you know, it pushed my buttons. Linus Torvalds blows his stack over a buggy new kernel. Now, you tell me if he blew his stack. We'll read this together, and you tell me if Linus loses it in this email thread. He says, I'm really sorry. I applied the last series from Andrew just before going to the 4.8 release. Because they, ca because they caused problems, and now it's 4.8, and that buggy crap is marked for stable, too. He wrote in a message to Linux kernel mainly as he then goes on to say, in particular, I just got this kernel bug at, and then he includes the path, and the end result was a dead kernel. Okay. All right. So far, it doesn't sound like he's blowing a stack, but we'll, there's another spot in here. We'll, we'll, we'll keep reading. Maybe, maybe we missed it. And this must be it. I should, have re I should have reacted to the damn ad bug one lines. I suspect I will have to finally just remove the idiotic bug on concept once and for all because there's no effing excuse to knowingly kill the kernel. Why the hell was that not a warning? And then the article adds, he fumed. They add that part. He fumed. Now, mm -hmm. he, he did use the F word, but he actually censored it himself. And he's talking mm -hmm. about a bug that kills a running kernel, which is like the biggest transgression to them. Right. And he's... N and he's kind of blaming himself. He's actually kind of yelling at himself. And, and well, here's the other thing, too. I think it's important to keep in mind. First of all, you have to evaluate uh, the language based on the, the person saying it, right? I don't think Linus himself sees uh, coarse language as, exactly. as, a, as a harsh thing, right? Like I think the it's, F it's, word it's a, it's doesn't have the same weight that it might no. have for the person writing this article. It doesn't have the same weight as somebody who works inside of a corporate business, you know, structure, or whatever. That just that's kind of the that's just kind of the lingo that he uses. And and the other thing that I think, and I'm sure this is kind of where you're going with the story to begin with, is that again, the media has taken something that Linus did or said, and they're going to take that and then they're going to construct a narrative around it to make him sound like this evil tyrant that sits in his basement, you know, killing people virtually and slamming people in and degrading them and belittling them as blowing as much up. As I mean he blew his stack, yeah. which yeah. is it's a it's a cute play on words because it's like there's also kind of like a software, like you know, you pop the stack, you blew the stack, like that. Mm -hmm. There's a play on the software terms there too, but 
I, you know, I had kind of a, I kind of had like a, a revelation. I might be wrong, but uh, this story, when it was just there was a bug in Linux kernel 4.8 and it's been fixed in 4.8.1, when that was the story, I wasn't really inclined to cover it in the show because not hardly anybody's on 4.8.0 and no stable distro that runs in the enterprise has shipped it or would ship it. So it really was kind of a non-story that I thought doesn't really apply to everyday Linux users. And even those of us on rolling distros still not getting bit by this, so didn't even really cross that threshold. But once they started going after Linus, it became a story. And I, and I think mm -hmm. that might be why they're doing it. Because they also don't want to just run a story, hey, there was a minor bug that didn't affect anybody that the kernel developers caught and fixed it, and they already have a fix for. That's not a very sexy story. Mm -hmm. But, you know, on October 7th, Richard needed to post something, and this was, this is more interesting than <laughs> mild bug gets caught by developers and fixed, right? Right. So yeah. Maybe that's yeah. why they do it. Mm -hmm. And it's not well, just that, for clicks, it makes it worth it. Yeah, and like I said, there's a, this ongoing, there's this ongoing mission to portray Linus in a very specific way. And, and also, it's, 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 I like it, I want to mention, remember, Linus is Finnish, and as the chat room points out, may have a, how, what, how did he say it? Um... Oh, I think it's already gone by. But uh, we have a different sort of um, prudism about language than he does and his culture might. That's yeah, what chat room yeah. I, I, I'm paraphrasing there. but And I think that's a perfectly legitimate point is we're looking at it from a very Western perspective, especially a U.S. Western perspective. I won't even I won't even pull in Europe into that. This is really it's a U.S. perspective where we're very prudish about swear words and all these kinds of things, but we can't, in any time, any time we swear in a show, we get feedback about it. And right. I think, I think that in a sense is its own type of insensitivity is be, when we expect everyone to conform to our moral standards, we are not leaving room for their own cultural upbringing, upbringing and perspective. In this case, it's finished. So yeah, the, the man might be writing the email from the U.S., but if he, if he, if he grew up in a culture where they swear uh, to emphasize and not to uh, hurt, then they have a totally different perspective for swear words. That, and let's let's also not let's also not undermine the fact that there is another culture at play here, and that is the culture of the internet, and that has evolved. Mm. It's that has evolved its own level of politeness and standards and stuff. And frankly, it's a lot more coarse than what we're used yeah. to in person. And, and they're dialoguing on a mailing list, which is. Yep, I good point. All right, so before we wrap up the news, even though we're about to go review the Plasma 5A desktop, I think it's definitely newsworthy right here to just note that KDE has celebrated its 20th anniversary this week. On October 4th, the KDE project released the new uh, KDE Plasma 5.8, and it was their birthday. So congratulations to the KDE team. Damn, that is incredible. And I've been running it on and off for a lot of those years. It's pretty neat. Uh, so they say today, the KDE release is the first long-term support edition of its flagship desktop software, Plasma. This, this marks the point where developers and designers are happy to recommend Plasma for the widest possible audience, be they enterprise or non-techie home users. If you've tried KDE desktop previously and have been moved away, now is the time to reassess. Plasma is simple by default and powerful when needed. So we thought we'd put that to the test. So that's all the news for this week. Let's go review Plasma 
It's finally here, the Plasma Desktops for us mirror models, and we can't wait to give you our thoughts on it and show you how we tricked it out as well. So I want to start by thanking our segment sponsor, the people that made this segment possible, this review possible, and that's Linux Academy. If you hear us talking about something in this week's episode that seemed like it might have been over your head or something you want to learn more about, there's a great chance Linux Academy has courseware on it. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged to support this show, and they now are offering seven-day free trials at Linux Academy's Never been a better time to sign up and try them out. By the way, if you get busy too, they got a new thing called Quick Starts. You might find that pretty interesting. About two hours or so, six or eight courses, you do just a dive right in. And if you're looking for a new gig, be sure to check out their new external profiles, which you can link to your potential employer so they can see all the course where you completed at Linux Academy. Linux Academy is a platform built by Linux enthusiasts, educators, and developers for people who really love and care about Linux. It's not just a feature. It's not just a thing that they might have along with how to fix your sync and how to use After Effects. No, this is what they do. And they're able to expand, too, into areas like Azure and AWS and OpenStack. And they have video courses with self-paced, in-depth, downloadable, comprehensive study guides, topics you can really sink your teeth into, hands-on labs and exercises, and humans can help you when you got a question. Check them out at linuxacademy.com unplug to support this show. And don't forget, they have that new seven-day trial. That's awesome. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged stacked full of Jupyter broadcasting community members too and that's particularly nice because they have this note card feature where you can fork the cards to make them more applicable and make them better like real open source software linuxacademy.com slash unplugged okay mr lts mr lts i was really curious to hear your take <laughs> on the plasma 5a desktop because it's it's a great one if you want a system that's going to be around for a while so why don't we kick it off with your take and then we'll come back. We'll talk a little. We'll talk a little plasma, and uh, I'll show you a couple of the real quick tweaks I made and uh, my thoughts on it. So we go now to Noah in the past. Take it away, past Noah. This week on the Linux Action Show, Chris and I are going to give you our review of Plasma Five Point Eight, and. We are going to be using KDE Neon to facilitate this review. Now, if you don't remember exactly what KDE Neon is, it's not a distro per se, but basically it is an Ubuntu base, and they've taken KDE and placed it on top of the Ubuntu base, and that's basically it. So it kind of takes that Antergos approach, um, but they do make a download available so that it's very, very easy for people to get started with KDE. So it's a prime example uh, and a very good way to go if you want to just try the KDE desktop out. Now, they don't exclusively stick to making KDE improvements. They did fix a couple of wireless issues that existed in Kubuntu. So if you were affected by that, then... KDE Neon, you're going to have a, a better time than you would if you were just using stock Ubuntu with KDE. Now, Chris likes to say that he was taking the uh, KDE Neon to give it a run, and then if he liked it, he would take it over to his distro of choice. For him, that would be Antrigos, and for me, that would probably be Ubuntu. Um, if you need any more information, head over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and take a look at episode 409, where we dove into exactly what we wanted to talk about with KDE Neon exactly what KDE Neon is and how it's not really a distro, but it's kind of a collection. So with all that said, the uh, this project, the project leader says, if your last 
uh, if your last experience with KDE desktop was somewhere south of now, it may be time to reassess. The team says that Plasma is simple by default, powerful when needed, and uh, it turns out that my last foray with KDE was south of now, so I guess it's time for us to take a look. The differences between 5.7 and 5.8 are, are are very minor. It's more of a polish release, more than like a huge change, but some of the things that they have done have really brought a cohesive design home. For example, their Breeze desktop theme makes everything look exactly the same no matter what application you're using, and from, as they say, startup to shutdown, everything looks identical, and that, again, really builds this very cohesive experience. You really feel like you're using a singular product, something that even though a bunch of developers have worked on a number of different projects, it all really brings it together. 5.8 really does that. <clears throat> right off the bat, one of the things that hooked me was their 18-month support cycle. So if you install it, you're not going to have to reinstall for quite some time. I don't like change. I don't like having to redo my machines. I like setting them up one time and then being done with it and using the computer. I don't want to have to tweak it. I don't want to have to play with it. And I, I don't want to have to continually uh, manage it. And so that's going to allow you not to have to reinstall for quite some time. I've always said that there are a couple of things about a desktop environment that makes it or breaks it for me. Those things are it has to have Firebird, or sorry, Firefox, it has to have Thunderbird, it has to have Telegram, and it has to have a terminal. Now, all of those things are available, obviously, being in Ubuntu base. But what is different about 5.8, and actually one of the biggest things that now makes KDE a real potential to be a daily driver for me is the ability to launch application with just the meta key. When I say the meta key, I'm referring to the super key or the logo key or the Windows key, whatever you want to call it. In Ubuntu and obviously in GNOME, Unity and in GNOME, I'm able to launch applications by pressing the super key and then typing the name of that application, and that application launches immediately. Previously, with KDE, I wasn't able to do that. It required you to press the super key plus the space key. And um, it's just different from how I operate every other desktop environment, and so that made it... It's it just one of those things that if I, I was going to subscribe to that desktop philosophy, then I would have to train myself to do that. And, it, it, and it, it, it sounds silly, but it's something that literally prevented me from ever considering it as, as a real daily driver. That has been fixed, and I'm not the only one that thinks that's a big deal. Um, Additionally, uh, as, as compared to stock Ubuntu 16.04 with Unity, I didn't have to reinstart when I installed Telegram. So Telegram started right off the bat i didn't have to i didn't have to do anything and with stock ubuntu with unity once you install telegram in order to actually get the application to run you have to restart it or you have to install some other little program i can't remember off the top of my head what it is i usually just restart um, their package manager has is very polished and works very, very well. Previously, they called it Muon, but it's now being branded as Discover. So they have changed that, um, and it's actually very, very slick. Uh, Discover is obviously, as its name implies, it's a graphical program that allows you to install, remove software. Additionally, it'll automatically notify you if there's an upper, if there's an update in the lower right-hand corner. Um, and then, of course, you can use it anytime to install that package. Now, Michael Tanell, our producer, who has been using this distro as his daily driver, that is KDE Neon, um, and you know was one of the first people to install 5.8, uh, and has been absolutely invaluable, I have to say, for this review, was pretty excited about something that seems like a minor improvement, and that's the virtual desktop switcher applet. It's now an option 
to show only the current screen in multi-screen setups. That's seemingly a small improvement, but it's really great for him because it makes it easier for him to create the same kind of GNOME workflow um, that he's accustomed to, but now he can do that in Plasma. And the last thing to note is that there is improved global shortcuts. So global shortcut configuration has been simplified and global shortcuts can now be configured to jump to specific tasks within an application via a jump list functionality. So hopefully you found some of that insight useful and you'd be willing to give KDE Neon a spin. And if you like it, then take the KDE desktop and take it back to whatever your distro of choice is. Personally, probably just going to stick with GNOME. In order for me to switch from one desktop to, the, to another, the new desktop would have to provide me something that the old desktop doesn't. And it has to do something far better than the old desktop does. And while I think that KDE Neon has gone come a long, long way, it doesn't scratch any particular itch that I'm not already getting from GNOME or Unity. And that's not to, that's not to rag on you, KDE folks. If you guys like KDE Neon, by all means, continue using it. I think it's a great desktop. I could definitely see this being useful in, in a commercial sort of application where you have a lot of people that are very used to the Windows uh, workflow. And I think it would be a far better choice than something like uh, Cinnamon, um, which again kind of follows that typical UI layout that Windows does. I'd be far more comfortable recommending people use something like KDE Neon. Um, but for me personally, probably just going to stick with GNOME. So I hope you found that useful, and we'll throw it back to Chris. Well done, Noah from the past. Well done. Now, uh, let me show you my Plasma desktop right here. This is my KDE Plasma 5.8 desktop. And I'm Looks kind a of, lot like mine. Yeah, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of leaving it stock, somewhat for the purposes of review, uh, but also because I wanted to kind of present it stock with as minimal tweaks I thought as it needed to make it kind of just a, a good usable state. So mm -hmm. uh, I thought you did a great review there. Um, and I didn't really have a lot more I wanted to add other than maybe I'll just kind of show you a couple of things that I, I like about the new desktop and some of the tweaks I made. Sure, let me, uh, let me take you for a moment, if I could, and walk you down the path. First of all, that new desktop is pretty banging, that new background. You like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Colorful, pops. And the nice thing is, it's one of those backgrounds that, that threads that fine line between being interesting enough that it's not just boring to look at, and yet if I put icons and, and files on the desktop, I'll still be able to find them. Yeah, so one of the first things I like to do on a Plasma desktop is I like to, to go to the dark theme. So I'll see, that was my first tweak that I made. It's dark mode, and it's easy. It's been easy for a while now, but you go right into workspace theme. And they have Breeze and Breeze Dark. So I'll show you. Here's Breeze. That was what you saw in Noah's review if you're watching the video version. And uh, they have different uh, color themes you can do, too, throughout the whole thing. And it's nice looking. I mean, it, they've really made default Breeze look really nice. But with a quick click, you can switch over to Breeze Dark. And I, I don't know. For me, I think QT looks best in dark mode. I just really I think, think it looks... Everything looks better in dark mode. To possibly. Be possibly so. Possibly so. I know not everybody agrees with me. Um, but so I want to talk about one other just kind of aesthetic thing that was sort of nice. Another one that not everybody cares a lot about, but uh, fonts have gotten a big change. Fonts. So go right here to fonts. And uh, they're using the Noto font now, Noto Sans font, which uh, I believe is a, is a Googs font. Chat room might be able to correct me there, but it looks really sharp throughout the whole release. And then one other thing that's super nice, I think it's a fundamental Plasma desktop technology, and I'm nice to see it. It's nice to see it now. KDE Connect, built right in. And you remember KDE Connect. It's that device mm -hmm. that integrates your Android device with your Plasma desktop. And, mm -hmm. But this is also, so not only is this a super great, super great resource for Plasma desktop users, but it's a good chance to kind of show maybe a couple of rough edges too. This font right here is extremely hard to read, the coloring. 
I know. I'm just pointing it out. I know. I know. I know. It's still, there's still rough patches like this. I, so I don't know if I'd yet say it's it's a perfectly refined desktop, whatever that means. It hasn't yeah. been gone over with that fine tooth comb that we sometimes talk about in some areas. But in, in, in general, it's such a huge improvement that that's really nitpicking. That's really not a big deal. And I think for me, you mentioned it in your review, one of the biggest deals is the super key freaking launches. Yes! I don't, that is, oh, my God. I, I, had, I had always installed a hack to make that possible, or I would, because yeah. uh, it's it gets hard to actually map it using mm-hmm. the keyboard mapping. So there were Plasma desktop applications you could install to essentially force it. Um, but they were hacks. Like, they were always monitoring for that key input and then reissuing the command in the background. Yeah. Uh, it's nice to see them move because it feels like a nod to uh, new users, potentially. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a small thing, but I I kind of I kind of thought that was a nice a nice gesture uh, they made. Lots of other all improvements. What do you think of performance and things like that? Uh, I thought it was great. And in fact, <clears throat> interestingly enough, you asked me about that. I, so I tried it on. I had it a three. I had it on three different machines. I had it on two physical machines, and I actually ran it in VirtualBox too. Uh, mm. Just I didn't do any the, virtualization for, this time. Well, the the interesting thing about the virtualization, I've never had this happen before. <laughs> Most of the other distros that I run in VirtualBox, I have to use the guest editions to get the full features of VirtualBox, like USB pass-through and full screen and all that stuff. Uh, with KD Neon, it just it, I, I did nothing to it. I just installed it in VirtualBox, and boom, everything just worked right off of the box. So I don't okay. know exactly how they made that work. Well, let's talk but, about Neon for a second. So Neon, okay. well, Neon probably includes that stuff. Uh, Neon's interesting. Yeah. So you kind of inferred it in the review. My take mm-hmm. on Neon is it's a nice place to visit to try out KDE to see if you maybe want to move there, and then if you decide to move, use the Plasma desktop on your preferred distro of choice. Mm-hmm. I like doing it when I switch over to the Plasma desktop too. I like doing a clean install, so I kind of start fresh with cute sure. applications and uh, the correct defaults. So when I click on something in my browser, it launches the corresponding Plasma desktop application. Mm-hmm. So I, I, that's sort of my approach to a successful Plasma desktop install: is try it in Neon, mm-hmm. and then deploy it in your distro of choice. And but I, there are people that are using Neon as a primary driver, though. Too. Yeah, sure, sure. I, I suppose that's no. There's really no problem in doing that. I, I guess, especially if you want to stay on top of uh, KDE. Well, updates. if you like. The- or if you like the Antrigos approach where you want just enough of the tools set up to get you going and then you want to make all the rest of the tweaks yourself because you get Ubuntu and KDE and that's it. Yeah, I feel like Neon would be a great, if you were really subscribing to the, uh, I feel like those people probably don't watch this review to decide to try it out or not. Yeah, yeah that's true. But I, yeah, yeah I, true. I feel like if you're, if you're, uh, if you're loving the uh, Plasma desktop sauce, we probably, we probably don't need to convince you and Neon would be, a, would be fine. I, I feel like it's still very a very development heavy distribution, but at the same time, it is based on Ubuntu, so it's not like it's going to get that crazy. So it's not like you're you're not going to go that wrong. So for so it doesn't sound like though it's convincing you to stay home. You're not moving in. You're not going to set up residence. Um, I so there are a couple of things, and and I and I, I touched on this in the review, and I can expand on it if you like. But in order for me to switch uh, desktops, in order for me to relearn my entire desktop paradigm, and and things that ha- I no longer think about things in GNOME or Unity, they just happen. Like I think about something, mm. and then it just happens because everything is just muscle memory. For me to jump away from that, there'd have to be a compelling reason to do so. I didn't find a single one. I didn't see anything in in KDE in Plasma 5.8 that I was like. That right there, that is awesome. That is way better than what the known people are doing. I All didn't right, find well, a single thing. 
I think I kind of had a similar takeaway because I am becoming more and more of the opinion that I want less desktop, not more desktop. Yeah. And there's a lot of desktop here. However, it is there's never been a better release, period. And yeah. there's never been a better de- set of defaults, period. Like mm-hmm. they, one of the things we used to say during a Plasma desktop review is, man, it's pretty cool once you go change all the defaults. That was a real common review line, and now that's not something we're saying anymore because they've really spent time thinking about this, and they've got a consistency and look that's at a level they've never achieved before, and I think very few desktop environments have, especially mm-hmm. when you, even when you're not running native applications. I mean, really top-notch work has gone in here. I've never really been able to say that about the Plasma desktop, and now that's a pretty that's a delightful thing to be able to say, and I think. The kind of user where this would, where, who might be considering to switch to this is if you're thinking about using Cinnamon or you use the Cinnamon desktop, consider Plasma 5.8. Yes. I think there's more life here. I yes. think I think the project has probably a, a, a better long-term, mm-hmm. uh, broader open source perspective. And mm-hmm. I feel like they've refined it to the point where I used to go to Cinnamon as a salvation from the Plasma desktop. And now the Plasma desktop, because because Cinnamon was a good mix between the GNOME desktop, but still allowing you to tweak a lot of things and pull in stuff online. And now the Plasma 5.8 desktop, shipping with defaults on, K, on, on Neon, mm-hmm. I say is easier to use, performs better than the Cinnamon desktop, and there's less things you have to tweak out of the box. I think it's a compelling release, and KWIN is a solid piece of technology. Looking forward to Wayland and Vulcan. I have way, I would bet way more on that horse than the Cinnamon horse, personally. Uh, so uh, the way that I view Cinnamon is primarily when I'm bringing Windows users over to get that kind of similar desktop paradigm. And in that regard, I agree with you 110%. I think that those users are going to have a way better time on, 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 on Plasma. I think Plasma 5.8 specifically is such a more refined and polished experience. I think it really starts to feel like a full desktop experience. And I, I think that Cinnamon still feels like it's it's still getting its edges worked out. And I think that they're con- they're not really concentrating on polishing that at all, actually. Right. Uh, on Cinnamon's what like Cinnamon's new banner features as you can put panels on the side where the yeah. plasma desk that's like that's like baby stuff on the plasma desktop. That's exactly. ba- that's baby stuff. And their UI and because they've because they fundamentally had some of that functionality since the beginning, their UI and their their ways you can modify and what you can do to it are much more refined. So if you want mm-hmm. a complete desktop environment that really feels well integrated, has a lot of bells and whistles, but that you can let the defaults now rule supreme if you choose, they've nailed it. And Neon's a great way to experience it, maybe one of the best. So mm-hmm. that's that's one thing. I think that's sort of my my big takeaway here. Yeah. Uh, but my I think my second takeaway is for me because I am kind of in the camp now where I kind of would. Prefer my desktop do less, like a tiling window manager. Oh, I don't that know that kind of less. No, maybe not that far, but close. <laughs> I think GNOME is probably where I'll stay. I though am pretty encouraged by what I see with the Plasma desktop, and I will continue to play around with it. I, let me let me ask you something, because let me see if if this lines up for you the way it lined up for me. Do you think it's an accurate statement to say that as a five point eight? KDE is as good as GNOME. It just doesn't offer anything compelling above and beyond GNOME to make those of us that are already in GNOME switch. I don't even know if that's fair. I think it probably has more compelling features than GNOME does. I just so? They're just not ones that necessarily speak to me. Um, yeah, you look at like the way that... So this is probably something you didn't mess with because it's not it's not like immediately appealing, but uh, mm-hmm. the way their K-organizer system all works with the mail and the contacts and the calendar mm-hmm. and the way that integrates into the desktop... 
light years ahead of what Gnome's just now getting to with calendar and, and evolution. It's it's really good stuff if you use that kind of information management tools like you might at a business. So they yeah. have some and they have they have some really nice functionality there. I, I just don't need that stuff. Yeah. I don't I don't need it. I use I use either a web app for some of that stuff or I have a dedicated app like Thunderbird or N1 and that's where I, I already have it. So those problems are solved for me. They're, they're not offering anything there. But if I was looking for tools to do the jobs, there's more tools like that on the Plasma desktop. And some of them are further along. Like you look at GNOME's calendaring compared to what KDE can do, and it's just not even comparable in my opinion. Yeah. So I actually think I think for uh, I think for business customers, enterprise customers that need a full functional desktop with a full suite of tools available to them that are all nicely integrated with the notification system and whatnot, I think it offers superior functionality than GNOME actually. So it's just okay. not superior functionality that I need. Gotcha. I guess. And I guess I, you're right. I didn't dig into it that deep. But what I came away with was, was as I was thinking, I thought, well, th- there, there's always been a couple. Well, and, and why would you I'm really like, play with those fun. if you have, if you know, you already have Thunderbird and you already have webmail. You already have yeah. all these. You don't really, you're not compelled to mess with that stuff. So sure. I don't. But, but what, I, what I did do, though, was, was that I went and looked at it and I said, you know, here's the thing. In the past, I've looked at these things and said, these are the reasons I wouldn't switch to KDE. I don't. Yeah. I didn't find any one of those this time. Yeah. There was nothing that I said. This yeah. is what would keep me from switching. Yeah. There's just nothing that actually. I think me to switch. my yeah my experiences sometimes have varied when I start getting into crazy audio setups, or uh, sometimes with Nvidia cards. I I tested five eight on I think all Intel hardware, so I don't have any experience directly with that. But audio setup wise, my new process of uh, process of elimination of audio devices where I just disable the ones I never wanted to use, like HDMI audio out, and then it, only ones left are the ones I want has worked solid for me now for several sure. Plasma desktop and, releases. And one of the machines that I tried it on had an NVIDIA card, and I had no issues at all. Okay, yeah. yeah and really well. That, you know, as long as the drivers are all working properly and all that kind of stuff, it, it, make, mm-hmm. it makes sense. And it's, it's fun to watch this desktop because it's one of the most forward-looking desktops out there uh, mm-hmm. and has been for a really long time. And a lot of that forward-looking stuff pays off in a way that we've all been waiting for in Plasma Desktop 5.8. And if you've tried it in the past and it didn't work so well for you or the performance wasn't there or if you've been kind of Plasma Desktop curious, well, don't just listen to our review. Go out there and download it for yourself. We'll have a link to KD Neon or there's probably packages hitting your local distro. It's worth giving it a shot. I'd and make say. sure to check out that cool explainer video. Yeah, that's true. That the, the one that lists all the cool new features of the new desktop. Yeah, it's got a super cool voice. <laughs> all right, that is the Linux Action Show's look at Plasma 5.8. Yes, the long-term support edition. And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. We have some great feedback to get to. We have some Linux hardware to talk about. But first... I want to thank System76, sponsors of the feedback segment, builders and machines designed, born, created, conceptualized to run Linux. In fact, they have, I think we've got to be some of the best laptops in the business, not to mention they just freaking run Linux by default because they're shipping with the GTX 10 series. They're really systems for people that want powerful machines. Now, I'd watch that Lemur. It's out of stock, so you never know. But the Oryx Pros are definitely the laptop of choice right now in the last audience. GTX Mm -hmm. 10 series, tons of storage. If you want to blow your brain organ, go look at the Bonobo workstation and go see how much disk you can put in a mobile workstation. If you're doing mobile recording like we do and things like that, that can be extremely valuable. Of course, they have desktops, servers, pre-built to run Linux as well. 
check them out at system76.com. And also, you can check out the behind-the-scenes video. I'll, I'll play a little bit of it for you. This is a behind-the-scenes engineering with David at uh, System76. Roll the tape. All right, David, what are you working on right now? Well, right now, I am working on kernel fixes. So he looks that, like an engineer. Uh, all of our uh, audio <laughs> hardware works exactly perfectly on Ubuntu and other Linux distributions. So, um, right now I've got a compiling here on the servile. Uh, kernel compiles take like 30 minutes, so it's pretty darn fast for a laptop. And then I'm testing here on our orgs. Looking at the dmessage output to uh, see exactly what it's doing so I can debug it and get the behavior uh, just right. That's pretty cool. Awesome. Sending that stuff back upstream, too, which is really nice. So it doesn't just benefit the uh, Linux that runs on System76 workstation. Check them out at system76.com. And when you get a rig, let them know in the comments that Noah switched to Linux. There might be something special that happens, but also it's just extremely important. Tell them. Very, very important. I wanted to give a shout-out to Rob Loach, Mr. Tunnell, and X-Metal uh, uh, for the Cody plugin for Jupyter Broadcasting, the add-on. I'm not sure if you're familiar, Noah, but uh, it turns out there's add-ons you can get for Cody. I don't know if you knew this. And, oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, and it's you can a, get other content that's not local media? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a new feature. And uh, the, uh, the plugin for Jupyter Broadcasting just recently got an update, thanks to the hard work on uh, X-Metal's part and Rob's part, and also, of course, the beard, and everybody kind of threw in. So now there is, uh, I think probably the, the headline feature is user errors now integrated with the application if you want to watch the user error show on Cody. And if you're already using the add-on, then you already probably noticed that the uh, update just automatically, the add-on just automatically updated. I, I turned on my Kodi box, um, I don't know, yesterday or the day before, and I'm sitting there and I'm starting to use it, and all of a sudden, bloop, the Jupiter Broadcasting add-on with, with our new logo shows up, and I'm yeah. like, oh, that's awesome, that's great, it's a nice little refresh. So that's thank so you. amazing when I learn things that are happening in my own company. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's not fair. I'd already been tagged in the GitHub oh, issue okay, and provided okay, information. Okay, uh, uh, okay. So I did know they were doing it, but I didn't know okay. when the release had landed. Um, yeah. And it was nice because, you know, I think x Metal, he watched last week's episode and just wanted to kind of step up and make sure that got done. And he was kind of new to it all, so it was a learning guy. site for him, too. Yeah, he's a good guy. So it's And thank you to Rob, too, for, I mean, how many years has he been helping us now with that? Yeah. That's super yeah. cool. So you can get your add-on. We'll have it linked in the show notes. Before we go, before we get into the emails, God, we're running kind of long, but I kind of wanted to talk about this. So you had me buy this uh, on the 6th. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This okay, is, now I understand what you're talking about. Yeah. I was like, what? I don't know. How, is it called uh, Focus? Scar Focus Right Scarlet. Uh-huh. Um, right. And basically, I, I I have owned every USB audio interface known to man, and I've tried them all with Linux. Now, PreSonus gets a special place in my yeah. heart because they were the first company to ever release a USB audio interface. I thought that that's who you were going to link me. I thought, so, I thought for sure when I asked you, because I have a problem with it, the one in studio and I need to replace it. Yeah, and so and and so and I have used the Presonus, and they serve me extraordinarily well, and I've never had a problem. And it's what I'm using right now. That said, I have heard from pretty much every other Linux user out there that's also doing Pro Audio that the Focusrite Scarlet USB interface, if you want just a basic USB audio interface to send audio in and out, 
this is the one to go to. And of course, if you want something more advanced, I, I've linked you and you've lo we've lo looked and talked about the Yamaha uh, USB mixers, which actually give you 12 channels that come into your computer. And then you can obviously send USB or audio in and out via USB and stuff. And so that's, you know, that's like a step up. But for 99 bucks or 150, what is 150 bucks for the stereo version? I think it's 99 for the solo version. That's just a mono single channel. Um, and it comes to the Neutrix connectors. So you get both quarter inch and XLR in a single uh, multi-use jack. So you can plug in either or, and then of course you get the quarter inch out at the back and a headphone jack. I'd be really interested to see what you think of it and how it works. Man, and, uh, it feels like a super high-end piece of gear. Like the knobs are real yeah. nice. It's heavy. It's got a uh, metal housing that sounds and feels real and nice and solid. Awesome. The back is clearly labeled. The front is clearly labeled. It's easy to see if I have 48 volt on, which is nice because sometimes that's not always listed properly. The switches are right there and solid. This mm -hmm. is... You know, I'll plug it in. I'll let you know how it works with Linux. It'll, you know, that, that's always actually kind of the anticlimactic part with these because if, yeah. they're, if they're well supported <laughs> under Linux, it just shows up and now it's a sound device. Yep. Uh, now but, it works. <laughs> yeah. But we use this to get sound from our machines in and out of our machines into the production. And so mm -hmm. we want to avoid buzz and we want to have some flexibility with monitoring, with headphones and whatnot. So that's why we break it out as separate audio interfaces. And uh, if you're trying to get good audio or if you're trying to start a podcast under Linux and you're using the built-in sound card for your laptop or your desktop, consider do breaking that. it out to something like this, right? And this is yeah. USB, and USB mm -hmm. 2 is plenty fast enough to support the audio bitrate. You can get brilliant studio-quality audio into your laptop by using something like this. And Use the local uh, built-in um, sound card for monitoring or something, but don't use it for recording. And so this is 150 bucks, which is sort of like Noah inferred earlier. Sometimes you pay a little bit more to know you get something with Linux, but at the same time, there's generally a level of quality that comes with it. So literally, and I bought this five minutes after you recommended it to me because you know I knew it was going to be a high-quality piece of equipment. And to be fair, um, it, there are cheaper versions. Behringer makes a USB deal that is, I think it's $49, and it gives you a stereo channel and a and a single mono channel. Um, but the audio quality, and again, you might have to, I'm probably a little over anal retentive. You have to have a good set of, uh, of cans on to be able to even hear the difference. But if you're a real audiophile, you'll notice the difference between a $49 interface and yeah. the $150 and I, interface. I actually think it's cheaper. I think it's 50 bucks cheaper than the interface it's replacing, the one that's going out on me. So yeah. It, it's, it's, for us, it's actually it's a little bit cheaper. All right, so let's just quickly get to the emails because uh, right. I think we did promise, and uh, we are running a little long, but we should do it. So Joe H. writes in about exploring Linux. He says, hi, Noah and Chris. I was wondering if at some point on LAS or on Linux Unplugged, you could cover some of the more bare-bone type distros. I'm not sure about the right name for these type of distros. I don't believe that I'm looking to roll my own distro, uh, but I would like to try to truly understand what that might entail. So a bear, what, what do you think of when you think of a bare bones well, distro? So the reason I threw it in this week's episode is because I think Neon really strikes a balance of a bare bones distro. You have an underlying distro base that you can use to pull software and, and have all the tools you need to actually use the software. And then you have a desktop environment that sits on top of it. And that's it. You, they don't make any assumptions about your choices. And you get to sit on your own assumptions and fill those in hmm, as, as you see. That's interesting. I kind of, I think my definition of bare bones stops once you add x once you add a graphical oh, wow. environment at all and if i was evaluating for the 1980s or 1990s i would probably Well, i think it's just my term my definition of bare bones i think of like a, a base system that you build up all of that stuff over time sort of sort of like your gen 2 uh, akin to a base arch install mm -hmm. but you know but then again i would also perhaps consider puppy linux or damn small linux 
yeah. base Linux, yeah. and those have a GUI. So I, I say we put it to the audience. How do you define a base Linux distro? And uh, would you like to see a review of that? We'll take your input and let us know if you're watching comments on YouTube or if you uh, want to head over to our subreddit, linuxactionshow.reddit.com, or if you want to use the good old email system, just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Uh, do you want to take there Eric's email? Eric writes in and he says he wants to switch video production to Linux. He says, I'm a small-time video editor for years and have been using the Adobe Creative Cloud Suite for editing video and creating graphics. I know there's Linux alternatives to Adobe Premiere and Photoshop, but I don't know of anything similar to After Effects. And mm. the one only really important application I need any advice much will be appreciated. Love the show. Good work. Now, I, you actually, this, this comment comes at an interesting time because I am actually finally, you are finally breaking me off of the Lightworks bandwagon and you're pulling me over to Caden Live. Mostly because if you can tolerate editing video on, on a given piece of software, it has to be very good because I have a way higher tolerance for screw-ups and having to redo things and little quirks than you do. So that uh, yeah, alone yeah, I think to me. I think Katie and Li Live is definitely one to check out for editing, and it does offer a little bit of animation keyframing, but it's not going to be After Effects replacement. No, no. Blender is really what you're looking for if you're looking to replace After Effects. I think that Blender is, is really going to have all of the tools that, that you need to create those really cool intros and 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 have you know animation and all sorts of flying stuff. And I'm the wrong person to ask because the, 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 the coolest thing I ever did with Blender was I downloaded a template of like the 20th Century Fox with the spotlights yeah, and that's replaced cool. it with Kernel Linux. I've done that too. And then it took me like an hour and a half to render it on my in laptop. Fact, and I'm like, I, even, I did one for the Linux Action Show. I created oh, one. Yeah, I, I, I have it around here somewhere. Uh, so is that true, though? Is that? Well, I, mean, I, I feel I like that's, that's the, the go-to line like, that we have in open source as well. Blender is great for it. But then again, yeah. I've, 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 I've opened up After Effects and gotten mm -hmm. some shit done. I've opened up Blender and I have fumbled ha heavily my okay. way through it. But is that because is that because I don't it's not know. cable or you don't know how to use it? Yeah, me neither. Me neither. I'm not a Blender guy. I'm putting so that I, one to I the. I think I want to put that one to the audience too. Is I think and I don't want the answer to be it depends. And if it, it also is there something else that we're not thinking of because Blender it's an amazing mm -hmm. open source project deserves tons of attention. But it's always our go-to. It's always the one we mentioned. Is there something else we should be mentioning? Since we're not in this field, sure. I would love to know. And if there was a, a – I mean, maybe it's just time to learn Blender because it's obviously a tool we could use here at the network too for our intro graphics and whatnot. So maybe yeah. it'll happen. Maybe it'll happen. But uh, I'd love to know feedback on that too. If it really, if Blender really is the After Effects replacement, I think of Blender as more like creating 3D scenes and environments mm -hmm. and, and being able to function – because it can do that, you can do other things. Where I, I see After Effects more as like keyframe, scene manipulation, and animation, mani and and well, there are I don't know. There are people that actually even edit video in Blender. So yeah, I'm not saying yeah. you should do that, but yeah, I'm just absolutely. saying that yeah. I think that it definitely mm -hmm. ventures on down that road. Mm -hmm. I think. I agree. But again, like you said, throw it to the audience. All right. We don't use Blender. <laughs> yeah, let us know. We got links to everything we talked about in the show notes. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the Linux Action Show, episode 438, and then scroll down there and check out all that shenanigans. Don't forget, we also have RSS feeds, so you get the weekly show. We're also posting on YouTube if you want to watch there. And we've got a uh, HD versions, large video versions, uh, audio only, and we even have torrents. All that kind of shenanigans. You can find it all in the show notes. Now, during the week, if you'd like to reach out, you can find Noah. He's on Twitter at Colonel Linux. I'm at Chris LAS. Anything else you want to plug, Mr. Noah? That's oh yeah, our company at Alta Speed. That's we are doing some crazy and cool things and trying to tweet more and be more active on social media. Ooh. So you can find funny pictures of the weird things that we find in the Those field. are good, actually. That's a great way to go. 
That I love those pictures. Yeah, at Long Alta Speed. Get us fired. <laughs> and there's a link in the show notes if you're not sure about the spelling on that. If you'd like to watch live next week, you can't. Just go get the local time converted for you at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Then head over to jblive.tv or watch in your Cody app. Huh? Another Cody plug right there. Why not? Why not? Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the Linux Action Show, and we'll see you right back here next week. They're just little baby spiders. You want to get them when they're baby spiders. They come out of the nest, and they want to see the world. This is, they haven't mated yet. They may not even, some of these monsters, the little ones, don't even eat for a while. They just get out and look at the world. They're born without the need to eat. It's creepy and disgusting, and in, well, obviously inhuman. So that's when you got to kill them. But if you don't kill them at that stage, and it, this, depending on the spider, it could be a day to a week. Maybe kind of kind of depends on the spider. Here it was about a, it was about a four day cycle for this guy. Then they get to the then they start eating, and they get to that bigger stage, and they get a little smarter. And uh, now they're hiding up in the uh, they're hiding up in the thing now, and he's not coming out. And there's two of them actually. There's one out in the other room too. And see the thing is is uh, I know I know that I should have taken action, but uh, couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Now. Uh, somewhere in all that mess of stuff there's a spider dude I watched the segment actually I liked it I think your audio was clipping a little bit really so here's you know you know what started that is I used a different microphone setup yeah. this time because yeah, everyone was all like and last time last episode everyone's like oh my god Chris Fisher your audio is amazing and I was like I have shotgun mics I can put a shotgun mic right in somebody's face and make it super freaking loud. Like, I can do that. Apparently, I overdid it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, seriously, that's, that's, that's exactly what inspired it. I'm like, I want everyone to be like, oh, my God, the audio quality in that segment was amazing. It was way better. I was like, I, I can do that. Uh, yeah. That's kind so of I adorable. Shotgun mic, and instead of putting it from, like, across the room or up where it's supposed to be, I just shoved it right in my face. <laughs> <laughs> you know that wedding I told you I went to last night? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, this is the best part. I didn't tell you about it. So well, I ended up, I ended up at a table uh, with a cut well, uh, three Linux users, three other Linux users. No which, way. Yeah, which is pretty cool for a wedding. Of course, the groom is a web developer, so it's kind of wow. withstand a reason his friends might have some technology. Anyways, uh, so one guy was a Manjaro user, and then the other two guys were Ubuntu Mate users, which I thought is kind of funny because. What's you know, whenever you meet another Linux user or somebody seems to know something about Linux, uh, you never like the conversation seems to go like you kind of feel them out and see how much knowledge they know. Yep. And so yep. they, yep. So, like, when, have you did you install Linux one time on that one computer? Yeah. Or, or, or right. is like that's what you use like every day for, yeah. So, I asked the guy just to start conversation where I go, Oh, so you use Manjaro? Uh, you know why is that? Why do you, why do you choose Manjaro? And what I was what I was digging at is I always like the well they have a testing repository that they hold packages in and then they have an unstable branch where people test it and then they move it into a stable sort of like Debian does and so I feel like it's a good mix of rolling arch with a little bit of testing so that's why I'm I, Manjaro I, issue hashtag kind of XFCE what you get those kind of answers no but if somebody opts to use Manjaro. And I yeah. and, and then I say, so why do you use Manjaro? That's generally the answer I expect. And instead, oh. the guy goes, well, um, uh, it's a Linux, and uh, it's uh, it's set up the way I like, and uh, 
it's basically just like Arch. And I was like, oh yeah, of course, he doesn't know what I'm talking about. And then the other guy starts name dropping Ubuntu, or Matei, like I've never heard of it before. Like it's kind of funny, like they have, because these guys have no idea. Oh, I, and I don't go yeah. there like, yeah, I podcast for 10 years about Linux. I just, because I, I cut, like I never really get to just meet Linux users in the wild that don't generally yes. know who, who I am. So right, it's exactly. great to like just pick their brain as like, <laughs> you, what are you, like how did you get here and why are you here and what is your experience like? And you're an untainted and how do you source. you not know my show? No, no, it's like you're an untainted <laughs> source of information. Like yeah, I can, yeah, you, yeah. you, you know, just there's no taint. And so it's it's fascinating to ask them questions, but the problem is they assume I don't have any idea what they're talking about. So they're giving me like these really shallow <laughs> answers, and I'm like, no, I want depth. And I, I, of course, it's awkward to probe too much. So that was it was interesting. Awkward to probe too much. But yeah, I guess the web devs they all like uh, Ubuntu and uh, Mate and uh, Manjaro <laughs> and uh, yeah, apparently a bunch of. I don't know users. that I don't know that I have. I'm trying to think. I don't think I've ever met a wild Linux user. Of course, you can imagine what I did next is I tried to talk to him about Anacros. <laughs> of course you did. But they were Of course th you did. They were yeah. so thrown off that somebody might know what Arch is that like there was barriers that and it's like uh and then it's like I then I became to realize that they don't fully understand what man, what the oh, what the advantage of Manjaro is. They just look at it as easy Arch. And then mm -hmm. so then I'm like, well, it's kind of like Manjaro, but they don't have their own repositories ex with exception of like five packages or whatever it is. So I, uh, it didn't land very well. And plus it's super loud there. And then the other guys just want to talk about Matei. And I didn't, I didn't feel like it'd be like, and then, and then they're like, I work with uh, one of the guys that uh, submits patches to uh, Fedora. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's, that's cool. And, and he's like, yeah, but uh, we prefer to use Ubuntu Matei. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, that's good. And he's like, yeah. Used it for quite a while. I'm like, okay, good for you. I don't, like, what do I say? Because I don't want to be like the. Well, I happen to know the what guy you, that you know. Like, what do I? Exactly. Like, what do you say to that? Like, you, like, you don't want to be a dick, and you don't want to be like bragging. So he's like, well, that's really cool. That's that's neat. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is, here's a, here. I guess here's what I'm getting at. If you look at what the music industry has done and what Amazon has done with the music industry, I don't know anyone that really pirates music anymore because it's just too cheap and too easy to go to Amazon and buy it for 99 cents. There's a couple people that are just too cheap and they're just not going to pay for music no matter how cheap it is. But the majority of people would just pay for it on Amazon. And if the TV or movie industry did the same thing, I think they'd have the similar results. And they could do it at scale. It's not 99 cents for a TV show. It's, you know, $10 for a TV show. I think they'd still be able to sell it. But I don't think that I don't think just selling a, uh, a selling an ad. I think, again, I think the people that just happened on Cody as their media box. Sure, those people pay for it. But I don't think you're going to solve the piracy problem. I don't even think you're going to put it. Yeah, but I think I think probably where our key difference there is, is I think the market of people that end up with Cody in their hands is likely to be larger than the the market of people that knowing that know what Cody is and know what piracy is and know how to do it. Because I think I think there's a, there's two big problems. I think there's boxes that people want to sell as streaming boxes and support local playback, and they need a UI to facilitate that. And there is also sort of this, there is this feature parody or this feature set that now that Cody on Android has that no other media playback application on Android even comes close to touching. So it saves yeah. them so much work. I think Cody's got a. I think Cody has a p the potential to have a super, super, super bright future in the consumer space. Well, I, I think if nothing else, you and I definitely agree that of all the different media playing solutions, no matter how you get your media. Uh, Cody is definitely the best in living room TV media playback thing there is. 
that we can that we can disagree what devices to run that on but 